millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome back once again to episode 21 of Signals to Danger. We are now a podcast that could drink in America. An apology for the delay in releasing this episode is probably needed. My laptop, which I unsurprisingly rely on quite heavily to create this podcast, was subjected to a deluge of liquid a week or two back, courtesy of my fiancé, who I've entirely forgiven and love very much. But not only was it liquid, it was LucasAid, so you can only imagine the sticky, syrupy panic I was trying to fight when she told me it happened. After leaving it for a week to dry out, thankfully, we've come to the conclusion it still works. The keys are a little bit sticky, and writing this script has been more painful than usual, but it works. The podcast continues. The sound of writing is now more clickety-clack than tippity-tap, but this is a railway-themed podcast, so I guess at least it's on brand. In any case, couple this with a fairly heavy work schedule, and I'll admit I've probably slacked a little bit as far as you find people are concerned, so... I am back, and I have a renewed vigour to uh, to get back on track with this. As I do any every episode, I'm going to open by thanking you for your downloads, your shares, your likes, and your interaction on social media. If you want to join these conversations, as I tell you every time, you'll find the podcast at, at Signals to Danger on Twitter, and me at, at Daniel Fox Rail. Don't forget that you can find show notes, the shop, and more at SignalsToDanger.com, as well as being able to find out how to support the podcast. There's a link there for Patreon. If you'd like to sign up, I'd be happy to have you. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank Andrew, Joshua, Anthony and Hassan for signing up to Patreon. With that intro out of the way, better late than never, let's get straight into this week's episode. The quiet suburb of Rickerscourt had just received a rude awakening. Residents were used to the occasional passing of trains throughout the night but this time the steady rumbling had been replaced with crashing, scraping and the noise of tearing metal. As curtains flew open just before midnight, 
residents were horrified to find the remains of two crumpled trains. The year is 1996, and the place is Rickerscourt. known to have died. Carriages are crushed one on top of another. One lies metres away and appears partially burned. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. We start every episode by briefly revisiting the events that were taking place at the time, and this episode is no different, so let's have a look at 1996. The year marked the start of change in the UK rail industry, as two train operating companies were born out of the privatisation of British Rail. The first two that had come into existence, South West Trains and Great Western Railways. Once more in these introductions, we're going to need to discuss the troubles. 1996 was a big year for Big Bangs, and the first of these was the Docklands bomb on the 9th of February. Two people lost their lives and 36 were injured. This explosion not only shattered the heart of the financial district, but also put paid to a 17-month ceasefire. The next month saw one of the truly darkest days of our country's modern history. On the 13th of March, 43-year-old Thomas Hamilton walked into the gymnasium of Dunblane Primary School. He then used handguns to take the lives of 16 students, one teacher and finally his own. The nation reeled at the news, and the debate on the public ownership of firearms was dragged to the forefront of people's minds. Following the massacre, two new firearms acts were passed, which outlawed the private ownership of most handguns within the United Kingdom. Moving on to the 15th of June, we saw yet another provisional IRA bomb, this time in Manchester. Nobody was killed, but the destruction caused, well, unintentionally, It led to the redevelopment and is now one of the nicer parts of the city centre years later. The 5th of July sees the birth of the first ever cloned mammal, Dolly the Sheep, and three days later, girl power well and truly lands on the stage as posh, sporty, scary baby and ginger, better known as the Spice Girls, launch their debut symbol, symbol? Single. Wannabe. And in the last event I will pull out of the year, all of the safety systems installed in the Channel Tunnel were put to the test when a lorry on one of the Euro Shuttle freight services caught fire. The systems are pretty fascinating, so we might actually cover that one day. 1996 was an interesting year with some real tragedy. For this episode, however, we're going to focus on one day, the 8th of March. Quite often, when we start an episode talking about a location which is quite unknown, we're referring to a village or a hamlet, Great Heck, Connington, Greyrig, in the middle of nowhere compared to other places, but close enough to the railway to lend their names to disasters which took place there. 
Rickerscote has now been added to the list of places I know about because the name features on the front cover of an accident report, but it's not quite as remote as some of the others. The name isn't attached to a hamlet, village or town of its own, rather a suburb of somewhere else, Stafford. Found in the West Midlands, Stafford is a large town of 68,000 people, located between Stoke-on-Trent and Wolverhampton. In railway terms, this means that we're back in familiar territory, the world of the West Coast Main Line. Like its railway counterpart on the other side of the country, the West Coast Main Line has featured on this podcast several times before, the episodes covering Nuneaton and Greyrig, to name just a couple. The WCML is the arterial route spreading north from London up to Glasgow, connecting the capital with Milton Keynes, Coventry, Liverpool, Manchester, Preston, Lancaster, the Lakes and Scotland. With speeds up to 125 mile an hour, the line, again like its eastern counterpart, sees a mix of long distance and commuter services, as well as a good amount of freight. There is one way the two lines differ, and that's the way the route runs up and down the country. The East Coast Main Line starts at London's King's Cross Terminus and then runs up one straight route, calling at each station in turn and then reaches Edinburgh. If you were to look at a map of the West Coast Main Line, however, there are a few differences. Branches of the route split off the Main Line to Manchester and Liverpool and in Scotland the route just splits in half with trains terminating in both Edinburgh and Glasgow. One of the biggest differences, however, is in the Midlands. Instead of one straight route, one individual line, the line has a big split. As trains from the north reach Rugby, they can either head to the west through Nuneaton or to the east via Coventry, Birmingham and Wolverhampton. These two branches join up again just outside the station at Stafford. Less than a mile down the eastern branch, minutes from the platforms of the station, the line passes through the area of town known as Rickerscourt. The story of Rickerscourt, like so many of these episodes, is a tale of two trains. The first was 6 Mike 27, and there is something different about this head code to most of the others that we've seen so far, and it's the number 6. When we talk about head codes, the identifying number for each train, there is a reasonable amount of information which is just right there in that four-digit code. The simplest fact to pull out here is why they're called head codes. They were introduced around 1850 and they were shown by oil lamps facing forward on the front of the locomotive. The position of these lamps on the loco denoted the class of train, which assisted the signalman in determining the gaps that they needed to leave between trains in the interval-based signalling system that was used at the time. They literally, oh, that's a fast train, I'll leave a bit of time behind that. That's a slow train, I'll leave a lot of time behind that. It's a wonderfully technical system, and yeah, there were a couple of accidents based solely around that which we might cover one or two of in the future. The lamps were lit at night, and they were usually painted white to assist with sighting by day. On some lines, white discs were used by day in the place of the lamps. And now I think some of the features you might have seen on Heritage Locos, or a visit to a railway museum, 
might be making sense in that context. In addition to the head codes that denoted the class, some routes added train reporting numbers, which denoted either a particular train or the line of route that the train was travelling on. In the 60s, the current format was introduced, where train class, route and reporting number all combined into one four-character number. All diesel and electric locomotives and multiple units built after that date were fitted with either a roller-blind display that could display the full reporting number, continuing the tradition of the number being shown on the head of the unit and helping to retain the head code name. Anyway, like I said, head codes give us a lot of information. To start with, the number at the start of the code, that denotes the class of train. And realistically, it kind of works like a priority ranking as far as signalling goes. One, at the start of the head code, that's an express passenger train, or a special type of postal parcels train, or a rescue train, a snowplow, something like that. Two is an ordinary passenger train, normally it's your stopping services. Three is a freight train, specially authorised, a parcels train, or a railhead treatment train. Four is a freight train that runs up to 75. Five is empty coaching stock, which is a passenger train, not in passenger service. Six is a freight train that can run up to 60 mile an hour. Seven is a freight train up to 45. Eight is a freight train up to 35. And nine is any other passenger train if specially authorised or specifically a Eurostar service. Lot to take in there. There is one more, which is zero, which is a light locomotive. And all that means is it's a locomotive without any carriages or wagons in tow. The next section, the letter, that generally relates to a line of route. Expresses which pass between regions of the country tend to follow a convention of E for Eastern, L for Anglia, M for Midland, O for Southern and S for Scotland. And that was very difficult not to phonetically say those. So Echo, Lima, Mike, Oscar and Sierra. There's also V or Victor for Western. But there are a whole lot of other numbers, uh, letters, sorry, which are used within regions. So those ones are used when trains pass between regions, but there's a whole other raft of letters which are used within regions. But I'm not going to get into that because we'll just be here all day and we'll never really get into the story of this episode. The, the lesson I'm aiming for here, I suppose, is that you can look at the code 6 mic 27 and understand the type of train that this was. The 6 that leads the head code tells us that this was a freight train permitted to run at 60 miles an hour. And if that's what you'd worked out, you'd be right. 6 mic 27 was a freight train and it started its journey at 1440 at Moss End Yard in Glasgow. Over the course of the day, it had made its way south and as the journey had progressed, the makeup of the train had changed slightly. At 20.38, the train arrived at Arpley Yard near Warrington. The train was intended for Wilsdon Depot in London around about 3.30 in the morning, and at just past 10 to 10, it departed Arpley to complete its journey. 23 wagons now formed the train, with 13 of them being tankers containing liquefied carbon dioxide gas. At the head of the train was a pair of Class 37 diesels, Built between 1960 and 1965, these workhorses can still be found working on the network nowadays. 309 of them were produced, and they're 
1750 brake horsepower engines were effect well they meant they're effective affectionately nicknamed tractors by enthusiasts they do have a certain sound to them there aren't 309 of them out and about now by the way but let's just concern ourselves with these two for now at 2309 the driver of mike 27 brought his train through stafford station and approached the junction outside the fast lines to london ran straight and the lines that ran via Birmingham and Wolverhampton curved to the south. The Class 37 at the lead of the train took the junction, and 6 Mike 27 started on towards Wolverhampton. As I said earlier though, this is a tale of two trains. The second one was 1 Sierra 09. Applying the same logic as before, we know that Sierra 09 could only be one of a few things. It wasn't a breakdown train. They tended to run as one Zulu 99, so signals knew exactly what they were. The Sierra in there is a good clue. It denotes a service to Scotland, and as a scheduled service, it was probably an express. Its passengers, however, were not people, but parcels. As an express mail train the train was giving signalling priority over other freight services and stopping passenger trains, allowing crucial first-class mail, perishable goods and other parcels to make their way up and down the country. Departing Coventry at half-past nine in the evening, the train was due to arrive at Glasgow just before 4am. Nine carriages, a mix of parcel vans, sorting vans and specialised mail storage vehicles were hauled behind a Class 86 electric locomotive. The mail train is one of the great traditions of our railway. The travelling post office found its origins as far back as the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, the very first intercity railway in the world. In 1830, an arrangement was made between the railway and the general post office for the carriage of mail on L&MR services. The idea quickly caught on, as post could be transported far, far quicker by train than by horse-drawn carriage. As early as 1838, this had progressed into the concept of the travelling post office. Why waste time sorting the mail before or after the railway journey? The travelling office added clerks onto the train, and the sorting took place on the move. The TPOs, as they became known, were eventually added onto more and more passenger trains. By the 1860s, equipment had been created to pick up and drop off mail without stopping the train. Nets were hung out from the side and bags hung up at the line side to be collected. And by 1963, there were 49 regular mail trains in service up and down the country. These were a mix of dedicated services and a large number of vehicles that had been added into passenger trains. I pick out the year 1963 because one of those mail trains was to fall victim this year to a gang of miscreants. £2.6 million were stolen. However, this equates to around 55 million in today's money. You've probably heard of it. This incident became known as, unsurprisingly, the Great Train Robbery. During the 80s, British Rail sectorised a lot of its work into consolidated business units, and one of these was Rail Express Systems, or RES. This was dedicated to the running of the mail services. Finally, when British Rail was privatised, RES was acquired by English, Welsh and Scottish Railways, the newly formed freight company, which does bring us back 
eventually, to 1996 and today's story. I may have gotten a little bit tangential again. One Sierra 09 was driven north from London empty, as far as Coventry, where mail was taken on board, and six employees of the Royal Mail joined the train. It continued to head north to Birmingham's New Street Station, where more mail and 14 more mail workers joined the train. From there, the train proceeded north to Wolverhampton, the 20 Royal Mail staff diligently sorting the mail, and the driver bringing the train up to its permitted speed of 90 miles an hour. Two trains, one headed north, one headed south, and both converging on the suburb of Rickerscourt. When the driver of 6 Mike 27 drove his train through Stafford, he noticed nothing unusual. Both locals at the lead were working fine and the train left the main line and proceeded down on the line towards Wolverhampton. On leaving the junction, the driver opened up the accelerator, under clear signals, headed south. A short ways down the line, however, the driver realised that something had gone wrong. The brakes of his train had applied themselves automatically. The train quickly pulled up on the main, and as it came to a stand, he became aware of another train headed in the opposite direction. One Sierra 09 was also running under clear signals on the approach to Stafford. On the northbound run from Birmingham, the mail train had been running quite comfortably at 90 miles an hour. On the approach to the junction at Stafford, the driver started to reduce his speed towards 60 miles an hour which was the restricted speed he needed to safely get through the junction. At this point he saw another train on the upline. This train was either stopped or travelling very slowly. It's clear to us now at this point that 6 Mike 27 was the other train, and both trains were very much in the same area. Rickerscourt. Very shortly after seeing the other train stopped, the driver of the mail train became aware of a large, dark-coloured object on the rail in front of him. Nothing could be done to prevent the collision. At the head of the southbound freight, the driver knew something was up. As he came to a stand following his unsolicited brake demand, he looked back along the line out of his cab window. He saw the wires of the overhead lines bouncing around. This wasn't supposed to happen. Those wires are supposed to be kept in tension. He alighted and walked back along the train to inspect it. Both locos and the first eight wagons seemed to be in the condition that he expected. But that was the problem. Only those eight were there to inspect. The remaining 15 wagons of his train were somewhere out there in the darkness. He stared back along the line and became aware of a hissing sound, and realised that he could see the rear of another train on the line adjacent to his. At this point his training kicked in, and he made his way to the nearby signal lifted the handset on the telephone there and spoke to the signaller at Stafford number 4 box. The emergency services were requested and the lines blocked. The message the driver relayed that was his train was partly divided, partly derailed and that he needed the help of the emergency services. He then returned to the cab of his train and picked up another emergency call, this time from the radio. He placed detonators and track circuit operating clips, which trick the systems into thinking a train is there, onto the opposite line to protect the other train he'd seen. And he walked back to the rear. 
By this point, the emergency services had arrived on the scene. The driver of the mail train was far more aware that something had gone wrong. For a start, he remembers coming to, which means that he lost consciousness. He was still at the controls, though they were at an angle. He crawled from the side window of his cab and became aware of what had taken place. His locomotive was laid almost straight across the tracks, its leading end up the embankment at the left side. Its front buffer beam was feet away from the end of a row of terraced houses. Behind the loco, the next four vehicles of the postal train had absorbed the brunt of the impact and had concertinaed across the tracks themselves. The leading brake van was laid alongside the loco, its front end heavily damaged in the impact with the rear, and its rear end destroyed by the forces of collision with the next, one of the sorting vans. The leading end of the sorting van mustered second in the train suffered little damage as that's what had overridden the brake van, but its rear end was a different story altogether. The impact between the rear of the second and the front of the third vehicles had caused massive damage to the rear of the coach. The sole bar, the horizontal beam which runs along the base of the bodywork, had been bent upwards with the toilet area at the rear of the carriage compressed to almost nothing. The body was severely damaged from this end of the vehicle. Luckily, no one had been in the toilet area at the time of the crash. The third coach in the train and the sorting van had carried nine Royal Mail employees at the time of the crash. Only three had been working, most were on a break, but many had been thrown around the carriages and received injuries due to the accident. Whiplash, cuts and bruises, there was a fractured skull in there as well. The remaining vehicles of the mail train actually ended up in line and still on the tracks, though the staff that were travelling in them were still thrown around and endured injuries. It wasn't just the Postal Express which had sustained substantial damage at Rickerscourt. The freight train travelling in the opposite direction had two. Its leading eight vehicles had remained safe and railed behind the loco. And if you were to walk back from them, you wouldn't find any more of the train until you reached the wreckage of the mail train. At this point, we find the next eight vehicles of the freight, seven of which were carbon dioxide tankers and leaking. Those eight were strewn about, mixed in with the wreckage, a line of wagons were laid to the side of the tracks, and two more were wedged around the locomotive. The last few wagons of the southbound freight did not actually derail, but they suffered quite substantial damage because they overrode each other and the buffers locked together. Staffordshire Fire and Rescue received an emergency call, Fire 999, at 2311. Uh, sorry. Two appliances and a rescue tender were dispatched, and arrived at the accident site at 23.15, only minutes after the accident occurred. Officers of the Staffordshire Police Force were however first to reach site, and together with bystanders, made initial attempts to tend to the casualties on the postal train. They ran into difficulty due to the presence of the leaking gas from the ruptured rail tank wagons that caused breathing difficulties for those undertaking the rescue attempts. Fortunately, the leaking gas was nothing more toxic than carbon dioxide, the fire service gained access to the accident site from the adjacent road, but they couldn't initially determine the extent of the accident because visibility was seriously impaired by the presence of the gas cloud. Further rescue attempts were made by fire officers, either wearing breathing apparatus or taking appropriate precautions for their safety. Despite this though, a bystander who had been involved in the initial rescue had lost consciousness and then been reported missing. Luckily, he was found and received medical attention. 
In total, 19 workers from the postal train and the driver were rescued and transported to hospital. But sadly, the collision at Rickersgoat was not without any fatalities. One member of the postal team crew appeared to have been travelling between the first and second vehicles at the time of the collision. 57-year-old postal worker John Thompson did not survive the impact. He was found in the gangway area between coaches 1 and 2, which had suffered one of the worst degrees of compression. In fact, he wasn't released from the wreckage until 6am the next morning. As the nation woke on the morning of the 9th of March, they saw images on their television, screens of coupled wagons, concertinaed carriages and the emergency services swarming all over. Yet another tragedy had befallen Britain's railways. Whenever accidents take place, it's obvious that the emergency services, the railway companies involved and the operator of the network, rail track at this time, are informed straight away. But those whose responsibility it is to investigate these incidents are also informed in these early stages, normally when the rescue work is still being undertaken. This case is no different. At half past midnight on the 9th, less than two hours after the accident, Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate was informed of the collision and three hours later, an investigator arrived on the scene. As ever, inspectors were on the site with the express aim of answering the questions that everyone needed answering. Firstly, what had caused the incident? What had the mail train collided with? Secondly, what had led to that obstruction being in place? And finally, when that cause was ascertained, were there any opportunities missed to prevent the accident taking place? When we approach that first question, it would be really easy to just make an assumption. Two trains were involved in this collision, so surely what the driver of the Postal Express saw in his path must have been the other train. And to be honest, it's not an unrealistic assumption, and the likelihood is incredibly high. But it's not really in the nature of the industry to just make those assumptions and be done with it. So despite how obvious something may seem, it must be proved to be the case. The first factor that supports this in the course of events is timing. When the driver of the southbound freight brought his train through the junction from Stafford, he accelerated and the train started to pick up speed. He then received an unsolicited brake demand and this took place as the train passed over a set of points where three lines to and from Stafford turned into a double track line to Overhampton. The important thing is that after the brake demand, as the freight was coming to a stand, That is when the driver of the southbound train saw the other train heading north, and that's corroborated by the driver of the postal train, because he said he passed a stationary train on the upline shortly before the collision. Both drivers' stories sit well together, and it's clear that the freight had almost come to a stand before the collision, and the reason why is easy enough to corroborate as well. When the driver walked back along his trains, he found eight wagons and nothing more connected to his locos. That 
would explain why he received the brake demand. For a long time, brakes on trains were a fairly primitive affair. Trains would be stopped by the brakes on the locomotive and tender, assisted by additional brakes in brake vans throughout the train. The footplate crew would apply the locomotive brakes, and a guard in the brake van would apply his brakes when signalled to by the driver, quite often with use of the whistle. This very technical system obviously creates issues, and as you can imagine, many accident reports discuss these practices from the early days of the railway. The idea that the footplate crew should be able to control all of the brakes on the train was always the ideal, but with trains becoming heavier and faster, it eventually moved from being a preference to a necessity. Various systems were developed, a chain that ran under the length of the train and physically pulled the brakes on. Hydraulic systems. There was even a complex mix of rotating rods and conical springs all thrown into the mix there. The ingenuity of British inventors was prevalent in the battle against this issue. But one idea proved better than all of them. Air brakes. Well, air or vacuum brakes, but the principle both is very similar. A system of pipes and reservoirs run along the train. With air braking, a compressor on the locomotive builds up pressure within the pipes, and this pressure holds the brakes off the train. With vacuum braking, it's the vacuum which pulls the brakes off the wheels. When a driver wants to apply the brakes, he operates a lever which reduces the air pressure by venting it out of the system, or allowing air into the vacuum, reducing it. Essentially, both systems work due to a managed air pressure in the system. The best thing about air-powered brakes, however, is that you can build a fail-safe into the system. If one of the pipes or other components is damaged, the system cannot maintain the pressure needed to hold the brakes off, and therefore they're just applied again. Small leaks somewhere in the system might be managed by the compressor topping up the pressure, but get a big leak, a real fault with the system, and those brakes just come on. And that's what happened here. Between each wagon of the freight train there are a number of connections. The coupling, connecting the wagons, is an obvious one. But there will have been at least one air hose, by which air was moved around the braking system. When trains are being put together and split up, caps are fitted to the hoses to maintain pressure in the system. But if they were split unexpectedly, well, the air in the pipe will vent to the atmosphere. The pressure in the system cannot be maintained, and the brakes come on automatically. Exactly like they did at Rickerscourt. The brake pipe between the 8th and 9th wagons had severed, and this brought the train to an emergency stop. This happened before the leading ends of the trains passed each other, which tells us that the division of the wagons was not an outcome of the accident, but that it happened before it. The factor that provides the largest clue, though, about what 1Sierra 09 hit that night is the placement of the wreckage. When investigators arrived on site, they found the locomotive of Sierra 09 up the embankment and its following carriages jackknifed. The wreckage of Mike 27 was found predominantly derailed to the left, as far as its direction of travel was concerned, which brought the wreckage to the opposite side of the track from where the postal train had been travelling. With the notable exception of two tank cars, those were found wedged up against the trailing end, of the Class 86 Loco 11 Sierra 09, fouling the down line. One of these, the one closest to the Loco, was the large object that the driver of the Postal Express had seen, just before his journey ended. 
abruptly. What investigators needed to understand now was what had led to those wagons fouling the opposite line. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What started the accident at Rickerscourt then was a derailment. Something had led to the wagons being off the tracks and in front of another train. The evidence here, as in most cases, started with what was left behind by the process of derailment. Last episode we spoke about witness markings, scratches and dents found on tracks and sleepers after an accident. Investigators walk the scene after an accident, and the approaches to the wreckage to find evidence of what took place there. Rickerscourt was no difference, so the walks took place here as well. 800 metres back from the two locomotives of the freight train, answers were found. A point of derailment was located on the up-fast line. The damage to the track was examined from this point to the collision site. Marks on the railhead showed that at this point, a wheel on the west side, or the right-hand side in the direction of travel, had fallen from the railhead into the space between the two running rails, which we call the forefoot. It had then ridden over the track fastenings on the inside of that rail for 323 metres, damaging and breaking most of them. Now from that point, there was similar damage to the track fastenings on the inside of the other rail, and a mark on the railhead to indicate that a wheel on the left-hand side now had also dropped into the forefoot. Soon after this, damage was found to the sleeper ends, outside of each rail, in addition to the track fastenings on the inside. This appeared to be caused by sliding metal contact from one of the axle boxes on one of the wagons. The axle boxes is what connects the axle to the wagon. 425 metres from that initial point of derailment, debris was found from one of the wagons on Mike 27. A handbrake lever and suspension components were found. But that's not all that was in this location. This is the point where the three lines became two. Where the two sets of rails converged in the points, there was evidence of components from a derailed wagon becoming trapped in between the converging rails. Beyond this point, major track damage was found. 
and it's this point that the Raggans became derailed en masse. So we know where the derailment started, but we need an instigating event. What caused it to actually happen? The clue was one of the components that was found in the wreckage at Rickerscourt, a wheel set from one of the wagons. A wheel set is a, a cohesive assembly. It's the axle shaft and the two wheels, and it really is easiest just to think of it as one solid piece. Incredibly strong and one of the most crucial components of a train, designed to come from the factory in one piece, be strapped onto a wagon, live its life as one assembly, and then be replaced when necessary. It's surprising that it was found in two pieces because of this strength. It was matched back to one of the wagons, the ninth one, the one that had fouled the downline and the one that had been collided with by the locomotive of the postal train. It wasn't enough just to find this broken axle. We needed to understand whether or not it was broken as a result of the accident, or had the fracture caused the derailment. The answer to this could be found in the markings found on the track so far back. If you remember what I said, there was evidence of wheels dropping into the forefoot from both sides. The wheels should not have been able to both fall in with a solid axle keeping them spaced the right distance apart. And that meant that a mechanism of derailment could finally be established and recorded for the investigation. The initiating event was the complete fracturing through the leading wheel set fitted to the ninth wagon in 6 Mike 27. At the initial point of derailment, the right-hand wheel dropped into the forefoot, and this point may have stopped rotating. Subsequently, the other wheel also dropped into the forefoot, and from this point the marks on the sleeper ends show that the axle boxes securing the broken wheel set to its underframe had been sliding along the rails, causing metal contact. When the right-hand axle box jammed in between the converging rails at the points linking the up, fast and slow Birmingham lines, it was ripped off the vehicle together with the handbrake lever. Major track damage then ensued, and the wagons behind them derailed. Most wagons derailed towards the left-hand side in the direction of travel, but the 9th and 14th wagons in the formation of 6 Mike 27 derailed towards the right-hand side, and therefore foul of the down-fast line. This put them directly in the path of train 1 Sierra 09. At some point, the through brake pipe was severed, causing the brakes on the train to apply. This way might have occurred when the 10th wagon in 6 Mike 27's train impacted against an electrification mast that caused it to suddenly come to rest. The shock of the sudden stop was also probably the cause of the overriding suffered by the rear five underailed wagons. As the front, underailed portion of 6 Mike 27 was coming to a stand, train 1 Sierra 09 approached and collided with the ninth wagon of the train. This impact caused the locomotive to jackknife, and the rear of the locomotive then pushed the wagon back along the track, impacting with the 14th, the other wagon that had derailed to the right. As we know, the loco ended up lying on the banking to its left-hand side, with the following four coaches askew behind it. Many injuries were caused, and one man lost his life.
Well, now we have your answer. The reason for the accident. Well, an explanation. The leading wheel set of one of the tanker wagons had fractured. But it doesn't answer the question of why that took place. It's clear that this shouldn't happen, especially not when this component is on a train in service. The two parts of the wheel set were examined by a British Rail Research in their laboratory at Derby, and what they found was that the axle had the correct dimensions, complied with the design specification, and that wasn't the issue. There were defects found in the metal, however, most prominently corrosion pitting, small, shallow holes in the metal caused by corrosion. Unfortunately, in considering the reason for the failure of the axle, a significant difficulty arose. That's that when the fracture occurred, the axle ends suffered considerable mechanical damage. This destroyed much of what evidence there might have actually been there to explain the fracture. The fracture faces did, however, show what appeared to be the fracture face of a ductile overload fracture, covering about a quarter of the axle cross-section. The remaining area of the axle cross-section was almost certainly a fatigue crack, which is really wordy and pulled straight out of the report, so I apologise for that. In simpler terms, that means that there were pieces of evidence that a crack had formed in the metal where the axle fractured. The past experience of investigators meant that they came to the conclusion that it was reasonable to conclude that the failure of the axle fitted the ninth wagon occurred from a fatigue crack which propagated from a corrosion pit. So there we have it. Traced right back to the reason for the failure, Rickerscoat was explained. The last point we need to hit then. Was there an opportunity to capture this before it took place? Could the damaged axle have been caught prior to the complete failure. A few times before on the podcast, we've spoken about the pragmatic and realistic view that things break. It's not a dirty concept. Nobody expects engineered to have developed the fantabulous unobtainium, which features in so many television and movies. Metal tracks, copper wires, light bulbs, wheel sets, they all have a shelf life a maximum amount of times they will light or rotate or heat up before they stop working. And that's okay, because when we create these pieces of equipment, we tend to have this lifespan as a known quantity, and we can monitor the components, examine them, and check them for signs of wear and tear. Wagons like this are supposed to be subject to a number of safety inspections, normally timed in a specific number of miles travelled, or a specific time period. A number of different railway group standards actually mandated the frequency with which these wagons were meant to be inspected on wagons owned by or leased by companies who were franchised operators on the railway. However, there is a slight difference for this one because this is a privately owned wagon. It belonged to a company called CAIB who used it for the transport of carbon dioxide. Because the wagon is privately owned, it needed to be maintained by the company who owned it, in line with a different set of regulations, which specifically referred to PO wagons, privately owned wagons. Now, when most of the maintenance records were examined, they were completely in order. But what did become apparent was that the timescale of inspections required by POs, private owners, differed somewhat from the ones that were required by railway operators on the rail track system. The standards of maintenance, design and operation differed from the railway group standards to the PO standards. 
inspection interview intervals weren't the same, and that meant that Railtrack, as the operator of the infrastructure, therefore had less knowledge of the safety of stock on the network than it realistically needed. And that was a hole in the system. Most of the recommendations levelled as part of the investigation into Riggerscourt related to the systems surrounding the maintenance of wagons. Number one, the most important, was that Railtrack should harmonise the standards, including the requirements for keeping of records, so that all railway vehicles in service on the Railtrack system were subject to the same system of standards, and that those standards were based firmly on risk control criteria. A lot of the other recommendations built on that one and how it could be implemented. Given the pivotal role of Railtrack as the infrastructure controller in securing safety on its network, and the fact that well, they can't be satisfied that the risk controls are adequate if they can't be sure that rail vehicles do not bring unacceptable risk onto the system, there didn't seem to be any other body within the industry that could act as the coordinator for these actions. It was therefore recommended that Railtrack should lead and act as coordinating body in meeting recommendations, with everybody else being obliged to participate as appropriate. Rickerscourt is a prime example of an accident which was... Well, the fault was not to be rectified by wholesale introduction of some new control measures, nor was it the fault of a major breach of procedure by someone violating the rules. This was an accident which required a review of existing procedures. Development of the process is currently used to try and prevent a recurrence of the scenes which took place in a sleepy suburb. Methods of checking wheel sets for fatigue cracks were improved over time, enhanced ultrasound techniques were developed, and the regime for maintaining wheel sets and the maintenance intervals all saw development for the better. But unfortunately, none of it took place early enough to save the life of John Thompson. If you were to take a drive to Stafford, head south from the station and take a few turns, you'd find yourself on the Russets, an unassuming street with garages and terraced houses. At the end of the row of terraces, there is still an embankment, and the main line still runs below it with freight and passenger trains a constant part of the soundscape. Like the sites of so many accidents, no evidence remains. No lingering damage or debris. Just a row of houses that suffered a very rude awakening 25 years ago.
thank you as ever for tuning into episode 21. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with me on social media, Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. If you do want to support the podcast, get yourself over to signalstodanger.com and either look at the support or the shop pages. And until next episode, travel safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.